So I have a confession to make. Sure. I love movies that take place on boats and ocean liners. I'm obsessed with them, but I'm terrified of the ocean and I hate being on boats. I get motion sickness really easily. I've I've never been on a cruise, which sure. is funny considering the one script of mine that I've given you to read right. took place on a cruise. Yeah. But yeah, I guess uh, your deepest fears, they may also be your deepest fantasies. Whoa. <laughs> Do you have uh, thalassophobia? Is that what it's called, right? The fear of the unknown in the ocean. Oh, hell yeah. That's yeah. their house. Right. Yeah. You can't just go into the ocean's house and expect that you're going to get out unscathed. For sure. The ocean is in some ways more terrifying than outer space. It is. It is. Uh, and certainly the, uh, the uh, intelligence, as it is credited in Virus, would agree with that. Shall we get started? Uh, do you want to dive on in? Ooh! Necromancer. I'm Shira. I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett. I'm a horror fan. What do we do here, Brett? Well, each week we watch uh, two movies. So you pick a rom-com and I pick a horror movie. And then we not only review those movies, but we remix those movies. Wicka, wicka, remix. We turn them into the opposite genres. And we have a grand old time doing it. Oh, yes. Just just some spoofs and goofs over here. Uh, and this week's theme is boats. Boats. Boats and hoes. Uh, I love boat movies. I, I love boat movies because I think it's, it's like, you know, in television, a bottle episode mm-hmm. where people are trapped in, in one setting and, and you... You just have to play characters off each other. Yeah. Do you feel like boat movies are often character pieces? Uh, yeah, I can see that. I think um, you also have that catnip for, what is it, like confined? Forced proximity. Forced proximity, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's not too many places you can go on a boat, so you have to be stuck together. Oh, yeah, no, you're just going to keep running into each other. And, yeah, no, and it makes more plausible the idea that a single person could become the object of obsession for an entire boat. The way that, you know, as soon as, you know, a handsome bachelor gets on this ocean liner in Lady Eve, everybody is obsessed with him. Yeah, instantly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's also rich. I think it's like, you know, like Anheuser-Busch, you know? Right. Where it's like, he's just loaded. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have a certain thing. You don't have a thing for boat movies like I do? (laughs) 
No, I like, I was thinking about some boat horror movies, which I can name drop as we get into it, but I don't, I don't know if I have like a specific mode of transportation for maybe airplanes. There's some good airplane action movies. Oh, there's some great airplane action movies. I mean, I, I know we were going to wait to name drop, but Con Air, Air Force One. Air Force One, for sure. Executive Get Decision. Get my plane. <laughs> um, yeah, Top Gun. Got a new sequel True. to that one coming out. Maybe maybe you're just a, you're a plane guy. Yeah, just a plain old guy. <laughs> <laughs> or I would think if not a ship guy or a plane guy that you'd be down with uh, do you like submarine movies? No. <laughs> <laughs> I I generally don't really like submarine movies. Yeah. The, so you're not into the U-boats? Just no, the, the I mean, R boats, the regular boats. I started to watch Das Boot, but I immediately felt like this is a movie that I'm going to tell people I've watched to impress them. Mm -hmm. But if they ask me if I actually like the movie, I can't answer that honestly. It's yeah. just not that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, like, run, Hunt for Red October, I wasn't really into that movie. I'm not a Sean Connery fan, though. Oh really? Yeah. You don't you don't like his do gravel? <laughs> you don't like that that sweet Scottish gravel? No, I, I he just I know I'm in the minority, but he doesn't do it for me. You know who does do it for me though is uh, old Donald Sutherland. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> he oh, I mean I had expectations, but. Uh, <laughs> Crazy man, Donald Sutherland. Crazy man, Donald Sutherland. You, you know, you thought it was just Keith or Sutherland right. who could do the wackadoodle crazy stuff, but uh, he got it some, from somewhere. For sure. Yeah, there was definitely some Kiefer vibes I was getting was from there, this one. Um, I, I, I know I'm, I'm getting right into it, but was there a moment in Virus where he had a picture of Kiefer? Yeah, like right at the beginning, he's got an old picture of himself. And the moment I saw that picture, I was like, oh, Kiefer. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'm sorry, I yeah. failed you. <laughs> yeah, I like that little touch. It was, yeah. So I, since I brought it up, what, what made you choose Virus? Uh, as we were scrolling through our choices of topics... The moment I saw Boat, I think I let out an audible, ooh, because my very first thought was, I can make someone watch Virus. Really? So it's I've recommended this movie to so many people, and I don't think any single one of them has ever taken me up on that recommendation. And it's a damn shame, because this movie is one of the most thrill ridiest crowd-pleasiest, big budgetiest B action movie I can think of. And it's so much fun. Oh, it's definitely a B movie. And <laughs> right. it knows it's a B movie. For sure. But it's it's fine with leaning into that. Oh yeah. Um I I mean I for me I felt like there were things about the movie that that could have been more developed, but I feel like there might have been limitations due to the time and even though it is big budget 
Um, you know, how you use that budget matters. Uh, I thought some of the physical effects were really incredible and other ones I felt were almost too cute. Too cutesy wootsy. They're a little, they're a little cute. Like, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to say like, but, um, the, um, the bugs, the, the, the The bug bots, the bug bots. And also the, the Foley effects for the bugs made them sound Cute. Oh man, that's you're you're getting into catnip territory for me. Cause <laughs> some uh, one of the big things I think I I've referenced this in other episodes, but uh, Monster Bug Wars, which you can find on YouTube, mm-hmm. when they put animal sound effects on the bugs, like lions roaring and pigs squealing. Some of the some of the robots in this movie have a little bit of squeals and roars in them, and that just. I go nuts for that. <laughs> I definitely like it. I wish that it had been more unsettling instead of what to me felt like cute robots. I don't know, man. <laughs> well, well, let's let's see. Let's let's let let's let our audience decide when they when they hear the summary of virus. Yes. So, virus we start with a Russian sea vessel in the South Pacific, and it's connecting with an orbiting space station. And then in space, a big electric cloud moves over the space station and attacks the entire space crew. And then that electric energy, which is credited as the intelligence, beams down through the space station's communication system into the ship in the ocean, and then it attacks that whole ship. Then we cut to about a week later. Uh, We're on the tugboat Sea Star. Captain Robert Everton, played by Donald Sutherland, is trying to move uninsured cargo through a heavy ocean storm while his navigator, Foster, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, tries to get them out. And then the ship's engineer, Steve, or Billy Baldwin, Uh, tries to make the captain cut the cargo so the boat won't be damaged irreparably, but then Everton says no. Uh, The crew makes it to the eye of the storm, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, And Foster then notices there's another ship on the radar, and they decide to go to it so they can salvage parts for the tugboat. And all of this takes place in the first 15 minutes. You learn... Everything you need to know about the movie in the first 15 minutes. They set up the dominoes, and the rest of the movie is just knocking them over. That's, ah, uh, it's, I think this movie is a genius. It, it has genius moments, and I, I, I definitely have some favorites right. that, that I'll, I'll point out. And, well, one, one other little thing is the movie starts off on an action-y beat of, like, the space lab blowing up. And then you would think seven days later, okay, we're going to get a little bit of a lull in the action. But then they throw you immediately into another scene where the crew is all yelling at each other. I love it when crews yell at each other. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I think that I've paid a lot of lip service to Cube on right. these episodes. And one of my catnips is anytime a group of people in a horror movie fail to work as a team spectacularly 
Uh, and, you know, the foreshadowing is there that this is a crew that cannot work together in a crisis. In a crisis moment, everybody is out there for themselves. Uh, and we'll see, <laughs> we'll see how that resolve is tested in a new situation. Um, so they get onto the ship, which is that same Russian vessel from earlier, and they notice there's no people, the power's off, so they turn it back on. Uh, and then when they do, the ship's anchor just instantly drops through the tugboat, sinking the tugboat, almost killing the deckhand, Hiko. Uh, and Cliff Curtis. Cliff Curtis. Very nice. <laughs> beautiful. Uh, and so once, once that's happened, now, now they have to stay on the big ship and get it working. So Squeaky... He's the first crew member to disappear when he follows a robot down a tunnel of wires in the engine room. Probably probably a bad idea. <laughs> um, and then while taking care of Hiko's wounds in the sick bay, oh man, what is an action movie without a sick bay scene? Yeah. It's just, it's it, it reminded me a lot of our science fiction episode. Uh, so while she's doing that, Suddenly, a surviving member of the old crew pops out of one of the lockers. They're wearing a gas mask. They start shooting. Um, the crew manages to to get it under control, and then it's revealed to be Chief Science Officer Nadia, one of the old ship's crew members, and she tells them they got to cut off the power right now. Um, but because this is a movie, nobody believes her. <laughs> And listens well, there. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes, because she's the only other woman, and she well, but she's still a skeptic, though. Jamie, well, she's reasonably skeptic, but she also is like this. Lady, something happened to something this lady. Something scared her. Right. She she knows that something scared her, but you know, Captain Everton is not listening. Right. Also, I some interesting. I didn't mention it in the summary, but I loved the character shading on Captain Everton, where right before. Right before they're about to find this ship, Captain Everton is going to shoot himself in the mouth. And the the skipper or the, yeah, I think the skipper, right, goes up to his door and, and says, hey. And it's just right then that he decides, Ugh, I, I guess I can salvage this ship and make back my money. Well, great little moment when, he, when they say we found a ship dead in the water and he says, I'll be there in a minute. Like, and he's still going to shoot himself. He's talking about, I'll be dead in the water too in a minute. But then he's also kind of saying, no, I'll be up there in a minute. Ah, oh, it's so good. This it's movie's a nice, so good. <laughs> it's a nice double entendre. Um, I mean, it's 1999, so it's, it felt like the last, the last death gasp of the 90s action movie. Uh, so, um, meanwhile, the other crew members, they find this robo workshop um and again i felt like this part this robo workshop uh it it's not as gross as it comes to be later and i thought it was very cute it it felt very batteries not included uh and they think it's cute too until the robot shoot screws and drills at them so they run away uh and as the crew's escaping they are attacked by a cyborg of the ship's former captain and Nadia's husband. 
They overpower the cyborg and bring it to the bridge so Nadia can deliver some exposition on the intelligence that attacked the original crew. But now they've got another problem. They're out of the eye and back into the storm. So they go in the computer room and Richie sends out a mayday signal, but then Captain Everton shoots the radio. Foster punches him and removes him from command. Oh, uh, what a great moment. That that was <laughs> I, I enjoyed that moment. Uh I, I, I feel like they, they give Jamie Lee Curtis a lot of fun things to do in this movie. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, and I, I liked that she, you know, they, they, they pulled a Ripley basically. Yeah. She definitely Ripley's the, this movie. Yeah. Foster could have been any gender, but they decided to do a Ripley. Uh, and so Foster takes command and they get the idea to use the computer to talk to the intelligence, uh, who reveals that humans were the virus all along. Whoa. How great that this movie came out in 1999, same year as The Matrix, which also had the... Humans are the virus yeah. all along. Yeah, like that's really cool. I like that. Yeah, no, it definitely had a, a different take on the robo-apocalypse. Right. Uh, and yes, the uh, intelligence wants to eradicate humans uh, and use them for spare parts. Uh, so this group splits up, or well, it, it's more accurate to say that everybody panics. Uh, and uh, Everton remains in the room to bargain with the intelligence. And then Everton mm. refers to himself as the dominant life form, and he goes to the intelligence workshop per its orders. So then the... And the bouncer, the bouncer robot lets him in. It's a great little moment. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed that. It, are you Captain Everton? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this, this scene, this workshop, it's kind of straight out of uh, Leatherface's playbook, you know, there's just dead body parts everywhere. It's real gross. The physical effects are great. Uh, so now uh, the crew basically realizes they cannot let the ship get to the nearest land destination because then the intelligence is going to spread to other electrical systems. So they decide they want to sink the ship. Uh, As they go after the plan, they are confronted by a cyborg version of Everton uh, and they kill him with a thermite grenade. Uh, And then they have to, uh, it's a really tense third act. They have to navigate their way through the ship and face off against a giant robot uh, that's being powered by the intelligence. Uh, Nadia sacrifices herself by blowing up a bunch of gas tanks with the giant robot. Uh, and you know, I during this whole time I was saying, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is the final girl. Mm-hmm. She can't die. <laughs> she can't die. Yep. Uh, so Jamie Lee Curtis gets chased by the robot. Well, no, she she gets chased by like in one form or another. So because the intelligence can move into different hosts, essentially, like a virus. Right. Uh, it's like a hive mind right. kind of thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, Steve uh, and Richie are kind of executing their own plans. Uh, Richie has rigged up a bunch of explosives 
uh, to go off in uh, one of the, uh, I think it's the engine room, right? The missile room. The missile, yeah, it's the missile room. So Which the ship isn't even supposed to have missiles. It's a research ship. Ooh, but it's Russian. It's so a, many twists. It's a Russian <laughs> research vessel, you know. Research and war are the same. Uh, so they they make it to the missile room, uh, and Steve decides to be the hero and and let uh, Foster yeah. eject out of the missile tube. But she says she's not leaving without him. Uh, so she buckles them both in. They push the button to eject themselves through the missile hole. Uh, and then as they do that, they pull the detonators that explode the ship. Uh, they rock it out of the ship. And then it also opens up a parachute. Mm-hmm. So they make it out alive. Uh, they wake up in the uh, wreckage. And you'll notice... Both of them fit on yep. the door. Yep. They both fit on the door. It also looked pretty warm in that water. So right. neither of them were going to freeze to death Titanic style. Um, but yeah, they, they make it onto the uh, rescue helicopter. Um, but then we get one last scare because oh, Jamie Lee Curtis has a dream that she sees Hiko. And then when she goes to rescue Hiko... He reveals half his face is burned off and then he tries to attack her. Yep. And then she wakes up in the rescue helicopter again and it's like, oh, it was all a dream. Yeah. End movie. And then, yeah, they ride off into the sunset. They do. I feel like, you know how I, I talk about how I hate tacked on romances? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish that they hadn't had, um, or maybe, maybe they cut it out, uh, which I'm glad that they cut it out if they did. Um, but the way that um, Steve is like kissing her head and holding her at the end of the movie, it's like, come on, like these characters were never into each other. They're, I don't know. They're crewmates. They're not. She had more chemistry with Hiko. Yeah, no, I don't think it's romantic. I don't think no, the ending is supposed it, to be romantic at all. It's just like, you know, it's just. We got out of this together. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're totally going to fuck. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but, but yeah, it's very, very tense, taut action thriller. Uh, I, again, I, maybe it's just a, a symptom of, of the times of now we have such sophisticated special effects that sometimes looking at the late 90s physical effects, it renders, you know, like I was saying, more cutely than menacing something that i kept thinking about was the way that um merging with technology is rendered really menacing in uh, anime Uh, for example i think that akira shows sort of the melding between uh non-organic and organic parts to be really gross and squishy um, or I think the thing also with its physical effects manages to make it appear more gross. Right. And the, uh, the intelligence, it's merging with um, human parts, didn't really become menacing and gross until we get to 
the very end when Everton is walking through the workshop. And it might as well be Leatherface's workshop. Right. Yeah, I I don't know. You get the little bit of cyborg action before that. And the, the first crew member guy, you get to see him all borged up. and Yes, he did look just <laughs> like a Borg. Um, uh, I love every bit of this movie, so... I don't know. It definitely, I agree, it probably could have leaned a little bit more into the Japanese body horror, but there's so many movies like Tetsuo the Iron Man right. that this movie is kind of pulling from that, though, yeah, that movie does it more and better, but the fact that this movie is just a hodgepodge of, like you said, it's it reminded me very much of The Thing. Reminded me of Predator. Reminded oh, me the of the crew aspect yeah. was very Predator-like. Uh, Tetsuo. It reminded me of Poltergeist, just in the thrill ride aspect, and the fact that one of the things I love about Poltergeist is sort of the oh, it's cutesy wootsy, just like the first workshop that they go to. But then right. the cutesy wootsy turns into extreme horror. Uh, and it's got Jamie Lee Curtis at the end swimming with a bunch of dead bodies, just like oh, that in was Poltergeist. She swims with a bunch of dead bodies. So, yeah, it's... Jamie Lee Curtis has really earned her status as the number one scream queen. Yeah. Oh, for and that's, you know, part of what makes this movie so fun is that Jamie Lee Curtis is the Ripley. She's just the sort of more fun version of Ripley. I don't know. I think Ripley is pretty damn fun. Well, yeah, but Ripley is also kind of super serious. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is too, but Alien is more of a serious movie, whereas this movie is right. No, it's, it's trying to have a yeah. little bit, a little bit more, more fun. I yeah, I I like I like movies where it's a crew like this one, and the leadership is insecure or non-existent. Uh, that I, 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 I always enjoy, you know, not, you know, I was joking about last episode, humans are the real monsters, but for me, what's mo- most realistically terrifying is the idea, like human problems, humans are going to fail to work together. Someone is going to assume a leadership role, but they're not going to do so responsibly. These are fears that feel more based in reality than uh, an intelligence from outer space is going to take over our computer systems and use humans for parts. But you can get me there if you give me a human problem alongside it to ground it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And the other great thing about this movie, of course, is the fact that I think there's six six or seven men in the movie, and all of them are idiots. Oh, they all are. <laughs> William Baldwin is maybe like half an idiot. You know, he's kind of got his head screwed on straight. But At least he's not as just... Uh, I, I was so worried coming into this that he was going to be as sleazy, if not more sleazy, than he is in Flatliners. Oh, right. And, and that, I just like, oh, God, another sleazy Billy Baldwin role. Uh, um, but he, Not quite, but... but... He was suitably heroic, but it right. wasn't like Michael Varton in Rogue, where 
he had no reason to be the hero. Right. But he just decided to be the hero because he's the obligatory. He's a most- good he's a good middleman between yes. the blandness of Michael Vartan, but like a sort of, you know He's not the so- the rugged charm of uh, uh, Michael Bean as Kyle Reese in Terminator. Like right. he's he's a good middle ground. He's a good you right. Know. He didn't he didn't overpower Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. He right. he allowed her to be the hero still. Yeah, and the two women in the movie are immediately the smartest <laughs> bunch of the group and the most badass and capable of the crew. And it's so great how many times in the movie a guy will suggest something. And the women are just like, no! I think there's that one point where William Baldwin says, we have to call for help. And they're like, no! They both shout at the same time, no! We need to isolate this thing on the ship. We can't call for help. And he's, he's, oh yeah, I know, you guys are right. Right, now there were a couple of times (laughs) where they just looked at him like he was stupid. Right. I, I I did enjoy, I did enjoy that part for sure. Uh, and, uh, I liked that there were two heroic sacrifices. You got Nadia's and you got Richie's. Right. Yeah. It's, and Richie goes full, full crazy, you know? So uh, this movie's full of cliches. Oh yeah. But no, it just he, leans he went, into those cliches so He went full John so McClane. Well. Yeah. What I want to know is where did Richie get the grease paint? Because... He was, you know, looking normal, and then the intelligence reveals humans are the virus, and then that's when Richie said, screw you guys, I'm out. Uh, And the next time we see him, he's all grease-painted up. Well, that little, the little bug bot tries to sneak up on him, and he promptly blasts it to bits, and he goes over, and he's like, Gollum, he's like, pieces, spare parts, I can use these. (laughs) And so there's probably, you know, grease in those robot parts. He just takes, it's like the blood of robots. It's not grease, it's robot blood. So you think he was (laughs) was just going full caveman rather than him thinking predator style, I need to stealth myself. Right, yeah, no, it's not a stealth decision. It's more of a a full kind of... Lord um, of the Flies... Yeah, uh, what's the guy's name in Apocalypse Now? <laughs> Kurtzman or Kurtz or something? Uh, Colonel Kurtz. Yeah, he, he just goes full Kurtz. He he gets mm. lost in the war. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. So, how, I'm curious, how did you turn Virus into a rom-com? Or wait, or should we first, should we first discuss who we love from oh, this movie, yeah. who we crush, yeah, let's go who into our crushes. crushes. Let me, um, let me look up her name. It's, I mean, I'm, I, uh, I, I try to just pick one crush per movie. That's okay. But I, I gotta pick two for this movie. That's okay. <laughs> one, I love Joanna Pacula in this film as uh, Nadia mm-hmm. because I don't really know who this lady is. I don't know if I've seen her in a lot of other movies. This is pretty much the only movie I know her from. And she's great in this movie. I like her a lot. And she has a Russian accent. 
And Russian accents are my number one accent. Ooh. So got a little got a little I, real crush on her and got I, a little character crush on her. Are you like Jamie Lee Curtis in a fish called Wanda? You you can't resist the accent. Oh yeah. The Russian accent, I cannot resist. And then of course, I feel like she would she I wouldn't pick Donald Sutherland except for the fact that he merges with the entity and I love when two characters combine to make one character. I know you're not a Metal Gear Solid fan, but if you were, you would know that that's a huge part of Metal Gear Solid. So that's right up my alley. It's also a huge part of Dragon Ball. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. The 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 trans, not the transformation, the fusion, the fusion yes. technique, right? Um yeah, but I just love when when characters combine. And so the fact that we get the evil captain combining with the evil alien intelligence is so delicious. <laughs> um, and I mean, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis, but I try not to pick main characters as mm-hmm. much as I can. So I'm curious about you. I would say that on a just a purely visceral level, I'm totally enamored with the. Uh, you said it's it's Cliff Roberts, is, uh, Cliff Curtis, or Cliff Curtis. Yeah, totally enamored enamored with Cliff Curtis. Oh yeah, he fascinates me. You could tell easily why he would go on to become sort of the more notable of the character actors in this movie. Oh, he's he's great. Yeah. He's beautiful. Um, that said, I really fell for. Donald Sutherland's crazy captain. I I love that he had a death wish. I love that it was clear that this was the man who was going to lead everyone else astray, all while pretending to be, you know, the dominant life form. Right. It's not even just something that he says to the intelligence. You get the sense that he believes it, too. Yeah. He believes it. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I just, I, I thought that, that he, he was, he was great. Absolutely great. So good. <laughs> so good. Uh, very much a kind of evil scientist not scientist, but an evil scientist version of Dr. Loomis, which. Oh yeah. He, he gave some major yeah. mad doctor vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of reboots or remixes i really leaned into the i really leaned into restricting myself as much as humanly possible you love challenging yourself oh yeah 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 the more you restrict yourself the the more you find yourself having the creative freedom to just do whatever the fuck you want. That's actually true. You know, you'd think perversely restriction would lead to the opposite, but no. But no. Uh, And the fact that these aren't real movies, the fact that I don't have to sit down and write a real script makes it even better. I like to think of them as treatments. Right. So I, one, I wanted my movie to take place in the 1940s. Because I wanted to, to, to remix my two timelines, right? So this movie takes place in the 1940s. I wanted to have a robot-human relationship. I'm, I support it. I actually read a really good AI romance Ooh. recently. 
Are you going to put that as your love bite or just I won't, leave us hanging? I'll, oh, well, it's called uh, The AI Who Loved Me. It's not okay. my love bite, but it's an enjoyable book. Gotcha. And I think there's another kind of restriction or two that I can't remember right now. But my movie is called Not My Prototype. Ooh. Ooh. And it's about Kit, who is a super awesome spy. And so the beginning of the movie is kind of more true lies-ish, you know? Except now Jamie Lee Curtis is doing the spying. Exactly. Uh, So, you know, it's... It's more leaning into the spoofy territory where Kit is a super awesome spy and she assassinates some Russian leader, right? Because this is like peak Cold War territory, you know, right at the beginning of the Cold War. Uh, Then she goes home and she's got like really bad kind of home life. Not that it's bad, but just she has no real connection to other people Mm because she's a cold emotionless robotic kind of spy, right? She's built up these walls uh, for her job. And then she goes to her superiors and she's given a mission. She has to sneak into a Nazi lab, right? Because, like, Ooh. the Nazis are sort of in hiding, right? you know? Uh, and the Nazis are building this robot. And Kit does not like robots, okay? Because spying is people work. And she's not into robots, y'all. She's like the Mandalorian. Exactly. And then she has to infiltrate the secret Nazi base and she wakes up the robot, but she's got a lab coat on, right? Because she's in sneak mode and the robot wakes up confused and he's, he's, he's questioning her like, are you my creator? Who are you? And she, then they get caught and she's like, yes, I'm your creator. And those guys are spies. So you have to kill them. And he goes into super kill mode murder mode yeah and he kills the he kills his real creators because she convinces him that they're spies and then they escape and of course this is all in some secret nazi bunker so when they escape they escape into the city and then they go to the docks you know they're on some kind of little chase and they end up at the docks and then they end up boarding the world of tomorrow peace cruise Okay. So it's the Peace Cruise, which is all about the world of tomorrow. So it's kind of an epcot sort of display. The, you know, the um, the Stark Expo in the Marvel movies. Mm. It's, here's the inventions of tomorrow. And so the robot ah. fits right in. Um, but Kit is kind of given a, a new secret mission because, of course, there's more Russian spies on this boat. Um, and her dog tags come out at some point as they're checking into their room and the robot says, you know, what are those? And she says, they're my dog tags, you know, so people know who I am. And the robot is kind of sad because he doesn't know who he is and he doesn't have a name. So he wants to get a name, but she doesn't like robots. So she's not going to give him a name. He's just robot. Um, and then we get a series of just a mixture of goofs where you have the sort of physical comedy of the robot is bad at doing things. Like number five. Right. Um, actually, that's what I was going to say is this movie, <laughs> I almost leaned full on into to short circuit territory, but I was going to say that short circuit is basically the rom-com remix of this movie already. Oh, right. Minus the boat. Right. right. 
Um, and I don't know how you feel about Short Circuit. I love, I love Short Circuit. I genuinely do not understand when people say that that movie is so bad it's good, which I've heard more often than I should. That movie is great. It's genuinely great. I haven't watched it as an adult in order to be objective. I watch it regularly. <laughs> How regularly? Uh, How regular is regular? A, f- a few times a year. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I feel like regularly could mean anywhere from every day to a few times a year. A few times a year, yeah. I love that movie so much. Um, so we, we got a couple little bits where we have to mix in the whoopsie i'm a clumsy robot who's gonna expose this whole sham kind Mm -hmm. of thing and spy stuff which is like goofy spy stuff so here we go super quick the first little bit is like cooking so the robot has to cook because this whole thing is showcasing the robot and how the robot is the He doesn't the know future. how to handle organic but he, material. He's meant to kill. He doesn't know how to cook. So he's cooking and he sets the whole kitchen on fire or the whole stovetop on fire. And then he has to suppress the fire with his fire extinguishing extension or something. But of course, the fire extinguisher fills up the room and that allows Kit to do some pickpocketing. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, next up is cleaning. And Kit has to sneak into a closet or some kind of hidden spot while she's while he's doing the cleaning bits. And so as everyone is kind of sort of wanting to move over to the closet and she's about to get caught, he's knocking stuff over and creating a commotion. So it's, you know... Everyone's trying to get into the closet, but he's knocking stuff over and distracting them inadvertently. Uh, There's a sports section where maybe there's like a golf ball thing, and he's got to demonstrate how robots are going to be good at golf. He's too accurate. And no, the golf ball hits something and bounces something and does the whole Happy Gilmore Rube Goldberg machine, and it ends up turning off the security cameras. Um, then there's a pet care section. So we've already established this robot is not good at doing what he's supposed to do and fails spectacularly. Uh, there's a pet care section where he's supposed to groom some pets. And so we get a nice little shot of a puppy with big puppy eyes and this robot with murder claws. Please tell me he doesn't kill the puppy. And so, uh, yeah, she just nopes right out of that situation. Instead of trying to be covert in this one, she just bonks someone on the head and, you know, they steal whatever they need Mm -hmm. to steal from him. Uh, then the next one is surgery. So he's got to perform surgery on someone, and she uses this as an opportunity to work together with the robot, knowing Ooh. he's bad at surgery, to interrogate someone. You know, so it's uh, it's a little bit of using his badness as a pro instead of a con. And then we get into the third act where it's, you know, they, they have to do something crazy, and she's like, okay, it's kill time because they get caught. And he says, no, I like helping people. He doesn't want to kill. And so he doesn't want to kill. And she says, the first law of robotics. Well, uh, he's already established he's meant to kill people. Oh, yeah. And he says, I like helping people. And she says, but you're terrible at it. And he says, I'm learning. I'm learning to be good. So they split up. The robot gets captured. He gets tortured. Then he gets thrown away. And she, she sort of discovers him as she's, you know doing her spy stuff and she says why didn't you fight back and he says killing is wrong 
And she says, the world isn't black and white. And the robot says, no, it's ones and zeros. <gasps> what? And then the robot dies. So she bends Wait, over. What? Yeah, of course. So she bends over to give him a little kissy kiss. And as she gives him a kiss, her dog tags fall out. And somehow the dog tags do a sort of hot wiring thing where it, the metal connects these two pieces. Like and it, flint? Uh, what do you mean like flint? It's, it creates a spark or yeah. something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it creates a spark and it jolts him back to life. So it's sort of a romantic kiss of life. But it's also the, you know, it's just the metal sparks him back. Uh, so then it's time to get out of there and they do a whole bunch of non-lethal set of skills to escape Very where nice. the robot uses new cooking skills to throw spices at the people attacking them. He uses a broom to clean up the mess of the oh. people attacking. Uh, maybe uses like tennis balls, you know, like the tennis ball shooter machine. His arm turns into a tennis ball shooting machine uh, and he, he bonks a bunch of spy henchman on the head respect uh there's attack dogs that attack him but he just grooms them into submission and it's all cutesy wootsy and uh she gets hit by a bullet but he performs <gasps> surgery on her because he knows how to do surgery now so it's you know using all the stuff he was bad at now as he stuff learned. he's good at right so they escape they go back to the main base and the boss is scolding them and he says and you know they both say well we quit and so the boss, of course, is not happy with that. And he says, well, you can't leave here alive. Nobody and then quit spying. Right. You can't get, you know, you can't get out. They always pull you back in. So then the robot, his eyes glow red and he goes into, to, you know, and she like cracks her knuckles and the robot, uh, his hands turn into like claws and a buzzsaw. And then they walk out. So you don't see what happens. They walk out. And then, the, you know, the assistant's just like, oh, they're just leaving. And then the assistant goes in to the boss and he's all tied not only is he all tied up and gagged but he's also very well groomed so it's very cute and so then as they're driving away they're driving off into the sunset i totally pulled this from uh from lady eve which we'll talk about mm -hmm. in just a moment but he says you know he says he's sad because he still doesn't have a name <gasps> and then she takes her dog tags and throws them out the window and says Neither do I, darling. Oh, I was hoping that you would address the name thing. <laughs> yeah, of but course. But that was an interesting solution. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, so um, that's not my prototype. Not my, not my prototype. prototype. You know, and you could also have a musical cue with a Outcasts prototype. Oh, I don't know so, It's. It's a slow. It's a slow song. It's gotcha. a ballad. It's a ballad about nice. how uh, the the object of the song is might not be the love of their life, but they're the prototype. Ah, uh, gotcha. And if it wasn't yeah, obvious, this prototype. movie takes place in the '40s, like I said. So the robot is very mm -hmm. big and clunky and awkward. Of course, if which steam is steam powered. Yeah, <laughs> which is perfect because, like you know, they're on the boat. Which is the world of tomorrow, Peace Cruise. So he doesn't have. I don't have to worry about hiding him. Right. You know, he just right. fits right in. So, yeah, I'm curious to see how you turned virus into. I I also cribbed from an existing creative product. There is a uh, there is a book by a person I've recommended on this podcast before, Lucy Parker. She wrote a book called Artistic License that takes place in New Zealand. Okay. And 
a lot of the elements I, I took from this story. Uh, but the renaming is, I renamed it Love Wrecked. All right. I like it. Uh, and in Act 1, we begin with Kit Foster, navigator to the SSC star alongside her father, Captain Robert Foster. So I made I made him her dad to, to give us some, some good father-daughter moments and her best friend from childhood, engineer Steve Baker. Kit likes life on the ship and spending every day with her dad and her best friend, but she longs for something more. Both of us caught on to that. I, I liked that. Yeah. Um, she's also a really great uh, artist and sketcher, and her cabin is just lined with drawings from port towns and stacks of old sketchbooks. And things take a change when they take on a new deckhand, Hiko, a New Zealand Maori man covered in tattoos. Hiko immediately takes a liking to Kit because of her leadership and the way she takes care of her dad, Captain Foster. But he doesn't think that someone like Kit would ever be interested in him when there's conventionally Baldwin handsome Stephen Baker on the crew. Uh, He also clocks that Steve is clearly secretly in love with Kit, but he's unable to tell her. Best friends, whatever. Uh, little does Hiko know, Kit is just instantly obsessed with him on sight, and all she wants to do is just draw him. And Ooh. she just begins filling her sketchbook with uh, sketches of Hiko. Uh, draw me like one of your Maori boys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and the crew, they then receive a distress call from another ship and they go to it. Uh, when they're boarding that other ship, the ship's anchor accidentally drops through the crew's tugboat and Hiko acts lightning fast to save Kit. And there's a little bit of skinship when they hold each other just a Ooh. little too long after the danger's gone. Uh, so now we're kind of getting into the middle act. Uh, the crew, they manage to get the ship's systems turned on and they help out the still existing crew in this case. But since the tugboat was destroyed, they now have to remain on the big trip on the big ship. There's one problem. While the captain has a trundle bed in his quarters for the other captain, uh, there are only two other bunks left in the cruise quarter. Oh, no. Steve and Hiko are both shocked when Kit chooses to share a bunk with Hiko and not Steve. Uh, and in that bunk with Hiko, with Steve beneath them in the bunk below, Kit confesses her feelings. Hiko responds equally. They're into each other. She wants to draw him, of course. He accepts. Steve is pissed. Uh-oh. Uh, but he thinks he still might have a chance. So he leaves a note on the bunk for Kit with the message, I'm still watching over you, which Kit takes in the wrong way and interprets it to mean that the anchor drop was not an accident <laughs> and someone is trying to kill her. So he says he's going to protect her. And then we proceed to have incidents around the ship that begin to happen where Kit thinks someone is trying to hurt her uh, and Hiko thinks he needs to protect her. 
but neither of them know that it's actually Steve just really failing <laughs> hard at getting Kit to see that he's into her and he likes her. Um, and then finally by the third act, the truth is all revealed and Kit just dresses Steve down for not being straightforward. If he had feelings, he should have told her to her face instead yeah. of leaving confusing messages and following her around and making her think that she was being stalked. Uh, and Captain Foster hears part of the speech and he misunderstands it to mean that Kit and Steve are now together and he's so happy because he always wanted Steve as his son-in-law. He's just waiting for it to uh -oh. happen. Um, but none of them realize that Hiko heard what the captain said. And so he, you know, he takes it to mean that Kit no longer wants him, but he has such low self-esteem. He thinks that he's ugly compared to Steve, even though Steve is Billy Baldwin. <laughs> uh, and he just, it's too easy for him to believe that Kit doesn't actually want him. So he goes onto the dock as soon as they hit the port. We get a lover's chase. But yeah. instead of guy chasing girl to airport, it's girl chasing guy across port town. She catches them. She explains. They kiss. The end. Nice. Yeah, so a lot of boat antics and... Oh, tons of boat antics. Tons of confusion because right. of Steve wanting to be <laughs> good but being very awkward instead. And just making the two principal characters like even closer together. Yeah. I don't know how that can be played in a way that's really funny, uh, but I, I feel you you could you could give it a try. Yeah, we'll have a lot of fun in the writer's room, just <laughs> spitballing ideas. Right. <laughs> Oof, so, ready to get into The Lady Eve? Yes, I am. Did you have a specific reason why you picked so, this one? You know, I, I said at the beginning of the podcast that I love ocean liner movies. So it was actually incredibly difficult for me to narrow it down to one ocean liner movie. Um, some ruled them out, ruled themselves out simply because they weren't comedies. So one way passage. An Affair to Remember. Uh, both of those are, are big ocean liner boat movies, but, you know, they're hard R on the romance. Uh, and then other movies that take place on ocean liners, uh, similar to Lady Eve, you know, it's really only the first act uh, and the last act, or in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, it's really only the first act mm. that they're on the luxury liner. But that part of the movie is so fun and just so alive that it, it made sense to to choose it. Uh, I also, I just really love Preston Sturgis. Uh, I, I feel if you are a really hardcore genre movie fan, then it pays off to see the early examples of the genre. Right. think that if you're a horror fan, and obviously you know about Universal, Hammer Horror, uh, and and uh, Val Luton, and the older horror films that paved the way for 
sort of the cinematic language we see today. And for romantic comedies, uh, their forebears are going to be screwball comedies. So Preston Sturgis is one of the best screwball comedy directors ever. Uh, he and I'd probably say Billy Wilder yeah. are among my favorites because their banter, their dialogue is on point. Uh, I think in the past you've mentioned how with comedies, it's not really a requirement for a comedy to be particularly visually ambitious. But uh, I feel that with Sturgis and with Lady Eve, there are some visually ambitious moments where they're trying things that I think are really interesting. Right. Yeah, it's not... It's not that the camera work is funny. It's hard to make camera work funny. Right. But the camera work in the the filmmaking, the the editing, the composition, all that stuff, it's just really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they let a lot of scenes develop chemistry to get like I one of the big things that I that I absolutely hate in a lot of modern comedies is when a comedy is over edited they don't take the time to show emotions growing it's you know, if I'm gonna see two characters in a room together ha, like I don't know how to say this but if I'm gonna see two characters in a room together bouncing dialogue back and forth and off each other and playing off each other, I want to see them in the room together, you know, bouncing the dialogue back and forth. I don't want to see a close-up, a close-up, a close-up, a close-up, and have everything so over-edited that it's just, you know, snap, 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 snap in terms of cut, 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 cut. I want to see the actors do it, not the editing do it. And uh, Billy Wilder, Preston Sturgis, they for sure let the actors shine in these kinds of movies. Oh, yeah. I I think that you're totally right about that. And when you described that, I specifically thought about the scene when uh, they go back to Gene's room. and, And you can tell that... Henry Fonda's character is so uncomfortable right. around her and is so nervous around her. And they have it set up as, a, I think, kind of a medium shot that just, it's un, it's uncut. And the way that the actors physically play with the, the space really shows off their characters well. I think another... Um, uh, Another stereotype, or not stereotype about old movies, but something people say often about old movies that I think just isn't really true, which is that acting or actors were worse then. And I don't, or or they, or actors weren't yeah. as nuanced. And, and in some ways that's true, but I do feel like Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck are good at acting out the small moments and the small sort of physical changes in their emotions and their regard for each other uh and it shows on screen so it's not just completely broadly painted and phony transatlantic accent talking characters right uh yeah i think 
You could probably speak better to this. I don't know if... uh, In a lot of rom-coms, specifically, characters will fall in love very quickly. Um, Yes. And I'm fine with that. I think it's silly sometimes. It's very silly if it's a non-rom-com movie. I don't have a lot of patience for that. But if it's a rom-com, yeah, they got to fall in love quickly, so I get it. But... This movie was made in 1941. I don't know if that's when it takes place, is 1941, but it's it's an older movie. Uh, did Karen, did people actually propose to each other after knowing each other for just a night or two? Is that, is think, that how it went down? I think that we're meant to assume the that day? they're on that ocean liner longer than a few nights because I think that typically a sea voyage could take anywhere from a week to two weeks okay but still i I don't know two weeks and then they're talking about marriage and then how was he going to find her they don't have the internet and cell phones i guess yeah true i i also wondered if it was an abstinence kind of thing you get the idea that this guy hasn't been with women before and that maybe he's saving himself for marriage so he's just kind of is he a virgin hero almost certainly yeah (laughs) almost certainly you can get the idea that that some of it is sort of i want to get married so that i can finally get down the virgin hero is like a unicorn they seem like they might be a myth but they exist rarely (laughs) uh rarely you you do you do see them Uh, But no, I think the assumption is, A, that she is so good at the con that she can make a man fall in love with her that quickly. Right. And B, he having had no exposure to women really while he was in the Amazon is just, you know, like a man right out of prison, basically. Right. No, I totally get I like that the movie... But her love of him, a little less believable. I, I can buy it, though, because she's a woman who is always conning people, and she probably she's has weary. this sense of, it's my turn to finally get some love back. And when this guy shows genuine love to her, she, you know, she wants it back, too. So I can buy it. I can totally mm-hmm. buy that they fall in love quickly. But the whole marriage thing, I just didn't know if that was a different time or if that was just a movie exaggeration. I think it's or, both. Yeah. I think that people were more decisive. Sure. Back in, sure. in the 40s. I think partly because there was a war. Right. Uh, and also partly because the the technology of communication was not advanced enough yeah. to where you could delay forming a relationship with a person right if you didn't form a relationship with them now when would you ever see each other again that's a good point that's why i asked i didn't know oh yeah (laughs) i mean that that's what i assume so why don't you you lay the summary on us sure we open with a cutesy wootsy little cartoon title i love cartoon titles which i thought was uh you know this movie the women all the older movies that we've watched i guess just those two but the older movies they always kind of 
lean into that sort of our title sequence is going to be fun. yeah it's going to be different than the rest of the movie there's a lot of older movies that are animated title sequences i love sequences. creative title sequences yeah. i love it i i love when the title sequence is a book and they're turning the pages sure i sure. love cartoon titles but it's it's something different than just creative title sequences it's the fact that it's this is an adult-ish, not like adult-adult, but it's an adult-ish rom-com. But it's like this little kitty snake putting apples up. Like it's so it's so out of place, but it's just cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we open with the cute cartoon sequence before moving to Charles Pike's send-off from an Amazon tribe with a rare snake in tow. Charles is the heir to the great pike's ale the ale that won for yale i don't know if that's a thing if i, I have, no, I have idea. no idea uh but it's a famous beer although he has little interest in knowledge of the family business he's more interested in science and snakes uh, as he boards a cruise ship a bunch of onlookers gossip about him as if he's a celebrity some of those onlookers include Jean Harrington and her father, Colonel Harrington, two con artists who set their sights on the rich man. During dinner, Charles tries to keep to himself while Jean sneakily watches all the other women fawn over him and gives us a snarky play-by-play of their I feeble attempts. I love the hand mirror scene. Oh, it's so great. Uh, yeah, she's given a call, like a, a play-by-play of... Yes. All, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as he attempts to retreat to his cabin, Jean sticks out her foot, causing Charles to trip and fall over. He first starts to accuse her of doing it on purpose, but she expertly turns the tables on him, showing him that he broke her heel. He escorts her back to her room where she lets him pick out a fresh pair of heels for her to wear, even manipulating him into getting on his knees and putting the shoes on her feet for her. It's a very sexually charged moment. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, especially given the fact, like, the fact that back in the day they couldn't just, you know, be so explicit with it. It was more... Yeah, that we're right Implicit. we're right in the middle of the Hayes Code era. <laughs> uh, so after she gets the shoes back on, they go back out to play cards with her father, where Charles innocently air quotes innocently wins six hundred dollars from the two. Uh, of course, they're 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 pretending to be rich people, right? Oil baron mm-hmm. people. Uh, so Jean this time escorts Charles back to his room, but is scared off when she discovers there is a loose snake in his cabin. She runs away to her cabin and he follows to apologize. And this is where she mega flirts with him, getting him all kinds of worked up, then sending him off to bed without any kind of hanky panky. The next day, Jean tries to tell her father and their con man friend that she has feelings for him and doesn't want to swindle him. 
There's a little cat versus cat game of card tricks as her father. I love that scene. What a great scene. (laughs) Such a great scene. Uh, Cat versus cat game of card tricks as her father attempts to con Charles out of his money and she attempts to thwart his attempts. She She temporarily wins the battle, but her father wins the war as he cons Charles out of 32 thousand dollars charles is the worst kind of sucker like he really feels like he owes this money to the colonel right but for them it's chump change you know i guess so uh when she discovers this she gets mad but her father rips up the check charles's bodyguard Think a comic relief film noir version of Race Bannon from Johnny Quest. Yes. Uh, he does some sleuthing and discovers that Jean and her companions are known card sharks. When Charles confronts Jean about this, she tries to tell him that she would have told him and is willing to change her ways, but he dumps her on the spot. Mm-mm. Jean is furious. But her father lets in on the fact that the check he ripped, oh, he did some sneaky palming, and at least they made out with a large chunk of dollar dollar bills, y'all. Cut to a horse race. Jean and her father and their friend are betting the odds when another con man approaches, telling them all about his latest scam, where he is pretending to be Sir Alfred McGlennon Keith. And who does he rub elbows with? The Pike family, of course. Jean asks if she can slip her way into the con, explaining, I've got some unfinished business with him. I need him like the axe needs the turkey. Such great dialogue. There's so many great lines in this movie. For sure. Uh, Jean pretends to be Lady Eve Sidwich, Sir Alfred's niece, and manages to get invited to a big fancy rich person party. There, she brazenly flaunts her charm about right in front of a flabbergasted Charles. His bodyguard tries to tell him that that's Jean. It's obviously Jean. But Charles foolishly reasons that she's so similar to Jean that it must be a coincidence. Because if Jean was trying to not be Jean, she'd at least change her hair or something. I thought that was a really good, like, you know, if, if you're leaning into the silliness of the movie. Right. That right. was a really good good way to do it. Uh, however, in his shock, he finds himself tripping over things and getting spilled on and making quite the scene. Lady Eve and Charles start up an innocent relationship and very soon Charles asks her to marry him. She says yes. They wed, and on their honeymoon, they take a train, and it is there Lady Eve confesses that Charles is not the first man she will be in bed with. In fact, she's been in bed with not just one man, but lots of other men. So many men. So many men. And Charles is willing to forgive her at first, but after about the dozenth man she tells him about, he runs away. During their divorce negotiations, Jean's con family tries to convince her to take the settlement and run. She, however, only wants to see Charles face to face, and he refuses. 
She learns he's going on another boat trip, so she books a ticket on the same boat, trips him in the same way they first met, and instead of being mad, Charles swoons over her, and they run off to his cabin, where he admits that he's married, and Jean admits, so am I, darling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, two things about this ending. Yes. One, uh, you referenced Some Like It Hot one time, which is a Billy Wilder flick. Right. And I agree that these older movies know how to end a movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They know how to end a movie. What a great line to end it on. What a great moment to end it on. It's so nice. It's so fun. And a high moment. Right. It. Yeah, I, I would say contrast that with something like Leap Year where it just keeps going and going and then Ugh. you have this... this uh, the Lord of the Rings Where do we go? Where do we go now? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, where it just didn't end. Right. <laughs> um, instead of just giving us bam, bam, bam. Uh, I didn't mean to hit the table there. But, um, and then just end on the highest note. Like uh, It's like an uppercut, basically. Yeah. Uh, however, this movie, the first two-thirds of it sets everything up so well. And then once they get into the honeymoon territory, there's... 10, 15 minutes left of the movie and they just bam, bam, bam. Like you said, it just rapid fire machine guns its way through the rest of this movie. This movie, along with Virus, is only an hour and a half long. I could have used another 10 or 15 minutes of fun, flirty, rom-commy, rapid dialogue, screwballiness. Like, I don't know why this movie felt the need to rush the ending so much. The fact that he gets on the boat, they meet each other, and bam, he's like, oh my god, I love you. I love you too. What? What? He's mad at Jean. He's mad at Lady Eve. And then he loves Jean again. Like, well, she told him, she was trying to explain to him that the girls that you think of as being good are often really bad, and the bad girls aren't so bad. Uh, I don't know, man. This movie, I just felt that it... I, I was... I don't know. I was a little disappointed in the ending. <laughs> Um, but I think Preston Sturgis, maybe that's his trademark because the only other movie I've seen of his is Sullivan's Travels. And that movie also kind of has a, a weird pacing where the movie feels really good. And then the last 10 minutes is sort of, uh, we've got to end this movie. Well, well, what's interesting about Sullivan's Travels, without spoiling the movie, you you get to the characters truly the main Sullivan's lowest point in the movie. And you're thinking, how the heck is he going to get out of this? And then when the solution is delivered, um, the rest happens so quickly that it's really, if I recall correctly, once he gets out of that situation, there's maybe less than 10 minutes of the movie oh, right. left. And then it's just a, a montage of newspaper headlines 
that get us to the end of the movie. And then similarly in Palm Beach Story, uh, the end of the movie is sort of solved by the two main characters revealing a secret about themselves. Um, it's not spoiling because I feel like it, it needs the context, but at the end of the movie, the hero and heroine in the Palm Beach story revealed that they are both part of a, part of sets of identical twins. And it's like, whoa, whoa uh, <laughs> where did this come from? It's like, oh, and by the way, we both have two other people who look exactly like us. Crazy. <laughs> so, so Preston Sturgis, it's, I, he will deliver the crazy ending. Right. I think probably for bigger laughs is, sure. is why I assume. But I also am dissatisfied with the ending of The Lady Eve, but more for a different reason. I, I always felt like Charles was kind of a weak hero, not because he's a virgin. I think that there's some really excellent virgin heroes out there and they should be written more. Not all heroes in a romance have to be man sluts uh but he's sort of sex shaming and his yeah. his just stupidity i i wanted jean to get her revenge to get one over on him but i always liked to fantasize about this idea of a, a smart woman like that meeting her equal rather than deciding that she's in love with this, you know, good man who can be played by her. But I get, I get what you mean. Um, he, I guess the only thing I could say in rebuttal is just Henry Fonda. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I I think anybody who would have watched this movie in the '40s would have been would have said, "I don't know what you're talking about. It's Henry Fonda. What more do you right. want?" Um, because he's such a bankable leading man at this time. I just the idea that the facade never ever really gets to let up that the weariness that Jean feels about having to always do the con, she's always going to be doing the con on him in one form or another. But that's meant to be seen as, oh, well, that's just funny. Um, But I got, there's so many things that I love about this movie. I mentioned the mirror scene. Um, There are just some some really great asides. one of the women who's chasing Henry Fonda in the beginning of the movie sees him walking away with Jean and she says, the nerve of some people. Mm-hmm. I just, I I really enjoyed that. Or um, uh, we were talking earlier about the, um, the cat versus cat poker scene. Oh yeah, that was great. Uh, it was so great. And they do such great setup for it too, right. where we see the setup for the con where he wins the $600 and then... On top of that, he is showing them a magic trick and he's explaining, oh, I do it by palming the card. And to have this guy explaining to card sharps how to palm a card while they look at him and say, oh, isn't that, yeah. isn't that interesting? Oh, that's cool. It, I thought that it was just so clever. 
I agree. Yeah, it, uh, that whole thing was just really fun to see, especially because you think he, the dad, is gonna win, mm-hmm. and then she gets it on him, and it, uh. oh, so many, <laughs> so many neat reversals and and touches. Uh, another one I enjoyed was so there's the scene when she's pretending to be Lady Eve, and before the scene, she's talking to her con family and saying. It's going to go just like this. He's going to take me horseback riding. He's mm-hmm. going to take me up to this hill. The horse is going to gently nuzzle our necks while he asks me to marry him. And it plays out almost exactly like she mentioned, except the horse will not stop nuzzling Henry Fonda. And he keeps trying to push the horse's head away and it keeps butting in. I don't know what they did to get the horse to do that, but it was just so simple, but so funny. Yeah, just those... Little touches. Just little touches like that, I agree. I also, I completely did not mention um, uh, Charles Pike's dad in my in my synopsis. Oh, that guy's such a great character but actor. He's so much fun in the movie. The fact that he's throwing a party and he doesn't even know he's throwing a party. Uh, it's, it's just so much fun. Oh, he's great. And I also, um, I I liked too that when she starts going over all the guys she slept with, it's while they're on a train. And then as it gets worse and worse, you hear the train horns sounding more and more furiously. Right. Uh, she, there's a part where she says, it's pronounced Cecil. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, oh God, I... I really, I just really love just the cleverness of it. And I, I feel like you don't get that as much in romantic comedies today. They don't try to be clever. Yeah. Or they don't succeed not, in being clever. Yeah, that's probably true. I'm not as well versed in the rom-com, so I couldn't say for sure. I feel like the trend now in rom-coms today, uh, you don't see sort of the the major production rom-coms like you did in the 90s and early 2000s. It's sort of been taken over by indie movies. Mm -hmm. And the indie rom-com, rather than leaning into cleverness or fantasy or something like that, they're trying to be real. And right. so they have a more improvised feel to them. Uh, we'll we'll certainly watch an indie rom com at, at some point, and we'll be able to make those distinctions. But but they're they're trying to be a little bit more, I guess, in their idea of like true to life. I I don't know. I'd like to see more movies that try to be more fantastical. Uh, whimsy is one thing. But whimsy doesn't allow itself to be sexy, to be fun in the way that The Lady Eve is. Like, The Lady Eve is not a movie I would describe as being whimsical, but it it has a a sort of sly humor that's a little bit more high fantasy than... Yeah, I was going to say, maybe not whimsical, but it has a sort of fantastical sense. Right. Yeah, Yeah. So... Who would you kill from this movie? Well, I thought long and hard about that. And I would kill the boat captain. 
The boat captain? Yeah, because he goes up to Charles and specifically says, hey, I got something for you, but I'm not going to give it to you because I'm going to mind my own business. And then Charles says one thing back to him and he goes, mm, all right, I'm just going to ruin your life with this little envelope, which I get, but also, dude, mind your own business. Right, and he also, he... He is a total shitster since he he tells him, oh, well, if you really love her, you shouldn't look at yeah. this. Okay, Pandora's box. <laughs> I mean, d- make it more attractive to and make me he, want to look in this envelope. He brushes off the bodyguard like, eh, get out of here. I'm the captain. And then the next thing you know, it's not like he gives the envelope to the bodyguard. He hand delivers it to Pike. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That guy, he needs to go. I honestly would kill Muggsy the bodyguard because he annoyed me. He just annoyed me. And I I don't know, his crassness, I don't know, it just didn't quite fit in. I mean, it was nice to give Charles a foil right. who was just so opposite of him and to have somebody telling him, it's the same dame, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I found his posturing to be not as funny as it could be yeah i guess just the fact that charles is such an innocent boy who goes on adventures and he's got this sort of guy who sees himself as a rough tugged bodyguard who just his job is just i take care of you and watch over you he's a babysitter i yeah i just i totally had race bannon vibes and i couldn't kill race bannon (laughs) i do love race bannon uh yeah me too (laughs) Uh, so let's horrify this rom-com. So you mentioned that the horror version, or sorry, the rom-com version of Virus has already been done and it's called Short Circuit. I maintain the horror version of this movie has already been done. Can you guess what movie it is? It's a movie that you've probably seen. I'm sure I've seen it, but I, I am at a total loss. Vertigo! Oh, yeah, 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 I can see that. <laughs> it's definitely the same game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't even think of that. The, the one movie I did think of that was a Hitchcock movie was North by Northwest because mm. there's some sexy innuendo kind of stuff going on there, and the whole train tunnel scene is a great little, like implicit sexual funny little gag oh the the sexual chemistry in that movie is great but i mean carrie carrie grant can flirt his way out of anything yeah the the first scene where they flirt on the train is top notch it's definitely chef's kiss yeah and north by northwest maybe the best bond movie out there Ooh, shots fired yeah not a big bond fan over here so i definitely think it's a a great little spy flick and carrie grant way better than sean connery way better (laughs) so tell me how did you horrify this movie okay i start off super strong and then get into some wacky doodle territory (laughs) I love wacky doodle territory. That's uh, where I but live. I, I start off super specific too, so okay. I've got some some real good scenes to start out with. Uh, first things first, my movie is called Killing Frenzy. 
So I like the sound of that. I also, you know how film noirs have sens- uh, sensational posters with a lot of tagline kind of, of declarations? Of course. Killing Frenzy. I'm a big fan of alliteration. Suspense in the seas. Terror on the tides. Murder in the maritime. That's going to be on the poster. I like murder in the maritime. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, Pike, who I, I try not to go down the rabbit hole of casting my movies, mm-hmm. but Pike, who I'm going to cast is Michael Shannon. Ugh, love Michael Shannon. Because I love Michael Shannon. Pike is in a hut, and he's monologuing to a snake. And in between some of the monologuing, we hear some shots and screams outside. Henchmen come in, and they say, the tribe is ready for our departure. And then uh, Pike says, this is where we say goodbye. And he's talking to an elder, so kind of like my movie from last week. Uh, He's talking to an elder, and he leaves the snake in the hut with the elder. And then as they leave the hut, we look around and we see that the tribe has been massacred and Pike's men are all kind of military-esque men. And as they walk away, the elder screams and we hear like a snake hiss. Uh, They step aboard a boat and the henchmen follow. Then we cut to, this This is, oof, I got a whole scene for this one. (laughs) We got Gene as played by Kate Blanchett. Ooh. Ooh. Because uh, I think she can play like a really cool mobster, bossy kind of. Oh, she's a chameleon. Kate Blanchett can do anything. I'm so desperately trying to get Sonia to watch Hannah. Have you ever seen Hannah? Yes. Ah, oh, one of the best villains in a movie ever. I love her as Marissa Wiegler. So great. Uh, so Jean is playing, or Jean is on a casino boat. And she walks through a bunch of poker tables, and she passes a sexy sort of bunny girl waitress who's walking out of like a secret kind of area. And so she goes up to the door that the bunny girl comes out of, and there's many gangs who are all huddled up, and each gang has their own little flavor. Of course. Uh, And she's patted down by one of the rival gangs, and she's allowed into the the poker game. And, of course, there's a bunch of mob bosses and one innocent dealer. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, There's Okay, let me get my math straight. There's four other mob bosses and then one innocent dealer, so that makes five other people total. Okay. Okay, because that's going to come in play later. Uh, then we get a whole bunch of montage stuff. And uh, then Jean sets down four aces, and one of the bosses grabs her hand and says, You're a lousy cheater. And he sets down an ace of his own, and he pulls back her sleeve to reveal a taxi driver-like card mechanical oh. device. And she says, No. Uh, and then when he, he reveals that device, he lifts up a gun to her head. And then she goes, no, I'm a pretty good cheater. And then he says, well, then how come you got caught? And she says, because I needed a gun. Huh? And then the card in her little taxi driver armed thing shoots out and hits him in between the eyes, killing him. Like, you know, it's a little fantastical there, but it... But the like a nail gun, the right. force of the, the card. The force of the card hits him right in between the eyes and then as he falls over in the chair she grabs the gun shoots the other mob bosses and it's super badass 
And then the innocent dealer kind of falls over and he goes, please, I'm not a gambler. I'm just the dealer. And she goes, you know, because Kate Blanchett's super awesome. And she goes, oh, darling, you're in a secret poker game dealing to some of the most notorious mob bosses this side of the Mississippi. You knew your odds. And he's like, mm, m- m- my odds? And she goes, yeah, one in six. And shoots him because you know it's a revolver. <laughs> so it's super awesome. And then as she walks out, her gang members have killed all the other gang members, of course, with like course. bladed weapons. So they're all wiping off their blades. So it's not guns. Uh, you know, we got to keep it quiet. And then her and her number two chat for just a little bit as the rest of the henchmen go and get the money. They put it, you know, they carry bags out. Mm -hmm. And while she's talking to her number two henchmen, she's playing with a bunch of poker chips, you know. Of course. uh, And then as she walks away, the bunny girl that she passed on the way in (gasps) is walking back with their order of drinks. And she sets all the chips on her tray and gives her a little winky wink. And then they go to the lifeboats, and as they get into the lifeboats and make their escape, we hear the bunny girl scream, and it's, ah, so just like the first scene, right? Nice. Oof. Now we get into the boat. Um, uh, a boat rescues Jean and her crew, and the captain is sort of like, more people stranded at sea? And it's, more? What? And we reveal that Pike's crew is already on board, and there's only one more room aboard the ship. So Pike and Jean are across from each other and their gangs are on different sides of the boat, right? In different like storage unit area things. Uh, And then at dinner time, they're each talking with their number twos about, you know, they, the number twos do some sleuthing and discover that there's a special cargo on board. And so it's Jean versus Pike. Like the number twos are talking to him, but Jean and Pike kind of make eyes across the room and they can tell that, you know, they're the only two on this boat that are like deadly and in charge and the alphas of the boat. So she steps outside for a cigarette and Pike joins and they have a little witty convo as they size each other up. And Pike says, you know, can we care to make this interesting? And he tries to bet her, you know, a little side, like he tries to bet her who can get the special cargo first, right? And she's just bored. She's like, oh, I'm so bored because I'm so badass and I'm good at my job and killing people so boring. So she says, how about we have a little side bet? And she wants to play a little game of last man standing where they kill off each other's crew and the last man standing wins it all. They're terrible bosses. Yeah, because she's just bored with it all. So she's like, fuck it. Let's just kill them all. So then my movie just, it just kind of devolves into slasher territory. I, that is not a bad sure. turn. Uh, so it's last man standing. So they tell each other's crews it's a heist, but really they'll be picking each other off one by one. Uh, so I got a couple little kills here. Uh, Jean, she does a little distraction to a guard, and the guard looks out a porthole, and there's like a rope. So it's like someone climbed out of this window. So he sticks his head out the window, but then Jean is actually up top and she cuts a lifeboat loose and the lifeboat decapitates the guy. And it's super cool. Uh, Pike, I I didn't really come up with a specific one for him, but I just figure, you know, he's Pike. He's a manly man. He can kind of have a two-on-one brawl where he's like, I'm not even going to try to hide the fact that I'm going to kill you. I'm just going to come up and punch you to death. 
Just brutal Michael Shannon style. Right. Get a cool little Michael Shannon boxing brawl in there. Uh, another one is Jean. She's she's stalking one of the or one of Pike's crew members is stalking the crew of the boat to get more info on the special cargo, mm-hmm. and um, and she kills him right like from the shadow of a door. We just see a knife come out like uh, the professional. You know the beginning of the professional. Right. Oh, super awesome, and then she drags the body overboard. And then when she drags the body overboard, some innocent lady comes running over and sees the body and screams, oh, man overboard, man overboard. So Jean is like, oh, my God, stay here. I'll go get help. And the lady is screaming, ah, just we're getting someone. We're getting someone. And then the lady goes overboard, too. And Jean is like, well, took care of that. Wink, wink. (laughs) Uh, And then another cool scene for Pike is maybe there's like a crowd. And he's on one side of the crowd, and one of Gene's henchmen is on the other side of the crowd, and he's hidden, and he's got a gun trained on the other guy, and he has to shoot through the crowd. Mission Impossible style. Right. He shoots through the crowd, through all the innocent people, hits Gene's henchman, and Gene's henchman falls overboard, but this time no one sees him. Um, Then we have the number twos, right? So we have to have the number twos come in. Of course, of course. Gene's number two betrays her, and he kind of catches on the fact that she kind of betrayed him first. So he's like, I'm going to take over the gang. It's my turn to be number one. They have a sort of Western-style showdown where he has a knife and he throws a knife at her, but she uses her little card gimmick trick to, like, shoot a card at him. And so the card hits him but doesn't kill him. And then she walks up, and remember, she has one bullet left in her gun. And so... You know, she says to him, sorry, it had to end like this. And he says, I knew my odds. And then she hands him the gun and she says, one in six. And as she walks away, he kills himself. Super awesome. (laughs) Uh, Nice callback. I know. I love sets up and callbacks, which is why I love Virus. Virus is just full of all of these setups and callbacks. Um, And then Pike's number two makes a sort of self-sacrifice and he, you know, uh, Gene gets the upper hand on Pike. And so just as Gene's about to win over Pike, Pike's number two steps in and makes a sacrifice and tells Pike, run. And then Gene taunts him and is sort of like, well, your boss just gave you up. You sacrificed yourself for someone who actually didn't even care about you. And he says, actually. Commander. <laughs> and, she, and he goes, actually, mission complete. What? What? And then she goes to her room and her money's gone. And it turns out that Pike really wasn't in it to kill all of, you know, to win the bet. He was in it to win the money. So Pike stole her money. So she goes back to the number two, who now is dead, and she takes explosives off of him. Maybe he's got grenades because he's more military, right? So he's got grenades. So she takes the grenades. She cuts all the lifeboats loose. She uses the grenades to uh, to blow a hole in the side of the ship. And then Pike comes up, and he's on the main deck, and he's, you know, it's raining out. We've set up storm foreshadowing, stuff like that. So it's raining, the boat's sinking, the crowds of people are running everywhere, and they're panicking. And then Pike and Gene have a shootout in the crowd, and innocent people are just dropping like flies. 
right? Yeah. It's just innocent people everywhere dying, and then they, they run out of bullets, so they switch to blades, and it's just super bloody and messy, and they fight and kill everyone on the boat until the boat sinks, and they're all out of people to kill, and they're all done, and it's just the two people left floating in the debris, and the blood is everywhere, and I'll have to do some setting up of a of like a shark monologue, but basically we end on a feeding frenzy as sharks start <gasps> swimming to all the blood, and the two main characters are left to be eaten by sharks. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I could totally imagine like pre pre the sharks coming to get them, them having almost uh you could have them maybe on a piece of debris on their back, smoking cigarettes, almost post-coital. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's, not, it's post-fight, and they know they're going to die. Right. But they're all worn out. Like and post-fight, and they're just like, oof, wow, that was actually kind of sexy, you know? Like, ooh, wow, that would be like, it's almost a good thing we didn't kill each other. But then, right, shark attack. Right. No, I, I, I yeah. like that. Yeah. I like that a lot, I think. I think that uh, Kate Blanchett and Michael Shannon could act the hell out of something like that. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Very cat versus cat. I feel like we, we like cat versus cat in oh, this yeah. podcast. <laughs> so. So, so uh, I decided to make mine kind of a uh, VC Andrews, my sweet Audrina meets Hitchcock's Vertigo on a boat be the concept. Gotcha. Uh, So I called this My Lovely Eve. Act one, Mr. Pike, head of a wealthy family, hires Jean, a con woman who looks exactly like his son Charles' dead wife, to seduce Charles and convince him to take over the family business. The dead wife, Eve, drowned at sea several years before. So Jean contrives to meet Charles on the same ocean liner, and as expected, Charles falls for her uh, because she looks exactly like his dead wife. Uh, And surprisingly to Jean herself, she also starts to fall in love with Charles, despite him being weird and reserved. Uh, And then Charles proposes, she accepts, under the condition that they go back to live with his family for a year. So that uh, the real idea being that Mr. Pike can then induce Charles to take over the family business. Um, But things start to get weird when they get back to the house. Now we're getting into the middle act, out of the honeymoon phase. They've moved into the grand family home and shit just starts happening. Like Jean finds out that all the clothes that she brought with her were taken and destroyed so now she has to wear eve's clothes uh Uh, charles replaces her shampoo with a box dye so that her hair is dark brown like eve's hair uh and then also charles's handler mugsy begins following gene everywhere so that she can't escape Uh, and everyone in the house begins calling gene eve Instead, despite her insistence that she's not Eve, and that she tries to pressure Mr. Pike by saying, well, I'm going to reveal the con, um, but then he keeps offering to pay her more and more money, 
and then uh, Charles starts to act more deranged. He keeps comparing Jean to the first Eve and criticizing her for not coming close to being as great as the first Eve. Right. Uh, and she, you know, she just tries numerous times to escape, but finally her spirit is just broken, which is where, again, character's at his lowest point, so it's time for the third act. Uh, so now Jean, she's just totally broken. She's trying, now she's trying in earnest to be Eve, um, despite being compared to the first Eve all the time. And a servant who pities her tells her that Eve had a diary and it's in the attic. Uh, so Jean goes up to the attic to look for the diary. And when she finds it, she breaks the lock. Cause you know, that diary's got a lock. Yeah. Uh, and out of the pages falls a photograph. And it is a picture of her as a little girl with her father. She looks at the back of the photo and it has handsome Harry and little Eve written on it. She goes through the diary and she learns more about what happened to Eve. Eve was abused by the Pike family. She wanted nothing more than to escape. Charles is just totally crazy. And he wanted to use Eve as a test subject for his anti-venom solutions by letting her get bit by venomous snakes. And then, yes, hiss, <laughs> exactly like hiss. And then in the diary, Eve makes clear that she's planning to throw herself overboard and commit suicide. So Jean, she decides to get revenge on Eve's behalf. She tells, Ooh. yep, yep. She tells Charles that her condition no longer applies so they can go wherever he wants. Uh, and Charles, of course, he doesn't care about taking over the family business. He just wants to find snakes. Uh, so he and Jean, they're headed out on another ocean liner. And then that night, Jean pulls out all the stops, getting Charles drunk and comfortable before pushing him over the ship's railing. And then while Charles is on the verge of falling, Jean says, I was never your lovely Eve. And then Charles, who seems now more resigned, says, yes. You were. And then he lets go. And when the waves take him, Jean has a flashback and she remembers everything. She really was Eve. But when she, you know, fell overboard and washed up, she didn't remember. Right. But after she killed him, finally she remembered that really she was the first Eve all along. This movie is crazy. <laughs> it's definitely got that classical kind of, you know, campfire horror movie tale of, you know, it's not Twilight Zoney, but it's, you know, perfectly Hitchcocky where Oh yeah, yeah like Hitchcock a, movies are ridiculous, but they work. He makes them work. It's a woman in peril. Like I'm yeah. I'm thinking, you know, constant suspense where Jean is having to deal with people, you know, who are gaslighting her, right. who are telling her she's the crazy one, uh, and navigating out of that situation. Um, I I mentioned V.C. Andrews, my sweet Audrina. Spoilers for my sweet Audrina, but that is the twist of my sweet Audrina is that this girl is being told that she's second best to the first and and best sweet Audrina, like right. being told how great the first Audrina, her dead older sister was. And then you find out in the end that actually she suffered a psychological break and she really is 
Audrina. Whoa. Those older horror movies are pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, V.C. Andrews, that's that's a book that right. was written oh, in like the 60s gotcha. or something like that. But yeah, the, the old movies are really great with reversals. Yeah. Really great with reversals. And then Italian horror movies would take it and step it up a notch. The, <laughs> those reversals are are just like older movies on cocaine. <laughs> they really are. I, I won't name the specific movie to, to keep it spoiler free, but one Italian horror movie we've both seen where the killer was hiding inside of a painting. Yeah. So great. There's, um... <laughs> That's so crazy. Oh, by the way, the killer's <laughs> hiding inside of a painting right now. I think it's the movie. It's Dario don't, don't Argento. Say, don't say what movie it is. Dario so Argento directed a movie called Tenebra. Uh-huh. And the movie is, you know, it's a Dario Argento movie, so it's pretty crazy. But it's pretty pedestrian for mm-hmm. for our gender it's very stylish but the the story is kind of just your average little story and there's nothing that's really giallo about it mm-hmm. and then the last 10 minutes happens and they probably throw 12 twists at you and it just gets into like now you see me territory where that movie was <laughs> I love that movie. That's a that's a Wait, silly that little ma- movie. Ma- magician heist movie. Yeah, yeah. That movie's silly, but that movie also ends on way too many twists. But at a certain point, you just go, you know what? I'm here for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I like your ending a lot. I like, and it's got the same kind of ending of. Um, of lady eve where it's you know you know end on a line yeah end on a line come on yes, guys you were Ooh. <laughs> so we we've talked about a lot of other movies and you know i mentioned the ai who loved me um although that's not my love by what do you got for us this week so I'm just going to super quick name drop the other boat movies that are yes. horror boat movies. Yes, tell us. Uh, you've got Dead Calm, which is a, just a neat little sort of forgotten about stranded at sea horror movie. Anaconda. Oh, yeah. you got J-Lo rippling it up. And then the other one was Deep Rising, which is oh. the Stephen Summers cruise ship monster movie with treat williams as the han solo roguish oh, the charming hero? type yeah and uh that movie is basically the mummy on a cruise ship so if you like the mummy check out deep rising it's a lot of fun mummy one of the greatest action romantic comedies ever done that's a great movie yeah, and totally, like I think it it, it applies to the rom- romantic comedy category because the relationship between Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz's character is kind of the heart of the movie, and their their banter is is really fun. Isn't is Ghost Ship a horror movie? Or, uh, the, we don't talk about Ghost Ship. We we don't we don't talk <laughs> that about movie Ghost peaks Ship. in the first five minutes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> There's like a a super awesome a taut wire gets snapped and everyone is cut in half or decapitated moment in the first five minutes, 
And it's all downhill from there, if I remember correctly. Is the Poseidon adventure the one where... I thought about that for Virus. That had a sort of Poseidon adventure The yeah. boat sinking, we gotta escape kind of vibe. Smarmy passengers. Right. I've only seen the remake. I never saw the original. I haven't seen either of them. The remake was fine. I'm sure the original is much better, right. but yeah. And if anybody complains about me not choosing Titanic, I maintain that Titanic is not at all a comedy. No. Nothing. And and although some romantic comedies have bummer endings, I really feel that in general, one of the one of the hallmarks of the genre is a happily ever after. So if you're not going right. to give me an HEA, then. I might not necessarily consider you totally part of the romance category. Sure. Um, but but yeah, there there are those are some aside from Ghost Ship, which we don't talk about. Those are those are some movies that I'll have to check out. Those are some good ones. Uh, but my love bite. I feel like I always say this when I talk about video games, which is that I don't play a lot of video games, and mm-hmm. yet I recommend one every few weeks. Um, but this new video game. This is my new game. This is my jam. And it's a little game called Enter the Gungeon. Enter the Gungeon? Enter the Gungeon. So punny. Very, very much a punny game. It is a top-down, bullet-hell, roguelike dungeon crawler. So a lot of stuff going on. This this game has a... It's it's so jam-packed with ideas... And my favorite part about it is that everything about it works. And it's got a lot of little little things about mm-hmm. it that just are, you know, sometimes when you play a video game, you're like, did the people who make this even play their own game? Like, why do I have to go through all these tedious menu things? I feel and, that you know, way. Like, I, I understand that feeling why, a lot. Why would you make me do this thing every time I want to do this thing? Just... Let me have fun with the game. I don't need a game to be easy. Like, this game is super hard. I don't know if I'll ever beat Enter the Gungeon, but I am having a blast with it. Mm. So basically, you play one of many different characters. I've only played as the Marine because I'm very stubborn, and I won't play as any of the other characters until I beat it as the Marine. But I would do that too right. if I were you. But you go into the Gungeon, and you start out at level 1. You try to make it to level 5. And every time you enter a room, if there's enemies in the room, the doors lock and you have to kill all the enemies. If you don't know what bullet hell is, it's basically, it's mostly, uh, the genre is mostly kind of based on like ships. Usually it's got a lot of ship um, stuff going on, but this is a guy, you you play as a guy. Mm -hmm. And all the enemies are kind of like bullets and they fire bullets at you using their guns. And it's just awesome. A lot of, there's so many cool references in the game. One of the guns is the Proton Pack from Ghostbusters. One is the Mega Man Buster. Oh, nice. One is the Judge Dread gun. And some of the guns are ridiculous. One of the guns is a t-shirt cannon. I like Which is that. great. Um, yeah, so it's just really silly. One of the guns is a shotgun shell that shoots shotguns. And those shotguns then shoot bullets. 
So, I like that. Very silly, very punny. Uh, one of the bosses is a Medusa type boss, and her name is the Gorgon. <laughs> one of the bosses. It's very punny. Very punny. One, uh, the main menu that has because there's there's not only guns that you get, but there's passive abilities and active abilities. Of course. So if you want to, so you have like skill trees. No, you do have, there's the roguelike aspect of it where you have a sort of meta progression through the game where you can buy different access. There's over 150 guns in this game. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So you start out with just a few, but you buy guns as you get credits and then you can buy different kinds of bullets. There's fire bullets and poison bullets. And then there's different things like you can get heart upgrades and armor upgrades, but every time you die, you start over. From the very beginning. Oh, that sounds it's frustrating. Intense. It's intense. But yeah, I have a few little nitpicks with, with it that I won't go into because I love the game and we're not a video game podcast. But um, As we remind ourselves, right. <laughs> but, we do our love bites. <laughs> the, um, the main menu thing that tells you about all the guns and passives and active abilities is called the Ammonomicon. That's so, pretty cool. Just tons of puns, tons of cool little things. It's... A blast. Um, yeah, I would, I mean, if you're just casually into video games, look up the trailer for it and you will automatically see that this game is super hard and not for you. But if you think you might like it, give it a shot. Like uh, I tried Demon Souls, you know, which is the predecessor yeah. to Dark Souls. That game's just not for me. The Slay the Spire game I recommended on one episode. I really like every element of that game, but it's just uh, it's just too hard, and I bounced right off of it. But this game, it's so hard, and I'm never going to beat it, but I'm having a blast. So, Enter the Gungeon. Enter the Gungeon. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll have to check out the trailer for that. I'm still in the middle of uh, Borderlands 3. Oh, right. Uh, well, I mean, I, I beat the main campaign, but that's not really what the game is about. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> got to get the platinum trophy well, for all the uh, the all the uh, you gotta trophies. Make it, you got to make it to level. You got achievements. Be, you got to beat the main campaign so you can do true Vault Hunter mode, so that all the enemies will be scaled up to your level. Oh, and right. then you got to make it to level fifty so that you can complete uh, your skill tree to the maximum amount of points, and then also collect the greatest uh, gun drops that are in the game. So you got to get those legendary guns. You've got to. You've got to. <laughs> I, I mean, well, there's nothing that video games are better at than making you believe that you need to hoard virtual items and basically work to collect those non-existent right. virtual items. Uh, but I really want that legendary sniper. Yeah. Uh, so why not? Um, yeah, so I, I also mentioned a few boat movies and... One of my favorite old ocean liner movies, I love Affair to Remember, and it's something that my best friend and I talk about all the time, but Jasmine, I'm sorry, my favorite boat movie is actually a movie called One Way Passage, uh, and it's got Kay Francis and William Powell in it. Uh, I think it was released in the 30s. But Kay Francis is a terminally ill woman, and William Powell is a criminal. And when he reaches the U.S., 
he's going to be taken into custody and then he's going to be executed. And she is going to die from her illness. This movie sounds hilarious. Well, it's actually, it's, I mean, it's a romantic tragedy, but the characters are, it, it has some humor in it and neither of the characters know that the other one is, has a death sentence. Has a death sentence. Gotcha. So both of them, it's a one-way passage, mm. but they still manage to fall in love with each other, uh, and knowing that you know they they have such a short time to be together. And one of the things that they do in the movie, which I repurposed in a script that I wrote, <laughs> was the characters after they drink their drinks. They smash the glasses on the bar and they leave the stems crossed. Now, when I wrote a script, I was I thought about if I were a bartender, how mad, how angry I would be at people who just insist on breaking glasses every time they have a drink. And people in the 30s drink a lot. Right. So that's a lot of broken glasses. But in the movie, it's, you know, meant to be very romantic and, you know, the the broken glasses. It's very cutesy-wootsy, as Brett would say. But it's it's a lovely film. It's very stylish, and uh, yeah, if you like a nice, big, wet, soppy romantic tragedy with some humor in it, One Way Passage will do you good. Sounds good indeed. All right, see you. No, Bon Voyage. Oh yeah, Bon Voyage. Adieu. <laughs> Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.